the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. This is All About Grants. Hello, and welcome to another edition of NIH's All About Grants podcast. I'm your host, David Kossub, with the NIH's Office of Extramural Research. And today, we're going to have the first of three conversations to help our investigators better understand how do you know you are actually doing human subjects research. And uh, we have with us Lindy Law. She is a human subjects officer in the uh, NIH's Office of Extramural Research, and I welcome you to the program. So to begin a kind of a framework to this discussion, we're going to be talking about human subjects research as it's defined in the common rule. And we'll jump into that little bit of that later, but that's kind of the overarching assumption that we're working with today. So Lindy, can you start us off? Just tell us a bit about what is human subjects? Yeah, so I'm going to go from the standpoint that we know the activity is research and we're questioning whether or not human subjects are involved. So the regulations provide a definition of human subjects and that is a living individual about whom an investigator obtains either information or specimens through intervention or interaction with someone and uses studies or analyzes that information or specimen, or they obtain, use, study, or analyze, or generate identifiable private information or identifiable biospecimens. So thanks for that. So why is it important for me to know if I'm actually doing human subjects research? Well, I would want an investigator to know that they're doing human subjects research because I would want them to be conducting that research in accordance with ethical principles that were identified in the Belmont report. And those there's three principles. One is respect for persons, one is beneficence, and one is justice. It's also important, not just the ethical reasons, but it's also so they can be compliant with the regulations and those regulations are, we'll talk about those a little bit more later. Great, and I raised it at the beginning, the common rule. Can you tell us how this all fits in with the common rule? Yeah, so the common rule is called the Federal Policy for the Protection of Human Subjects. And it's the basic protections that need to be followed when an institution receives support for human subjects research from one of the common rule agencies. There happen to be 20 different federal departments and agencies that have signed on to be part of the common rule. Those include entities like the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, Department of Veterans Affairs, along with the Department of Health and Human Services. Now, the common rule was actually updated in 2017, and the updated regulations are known as the revised common rule. So the reason it's important for an investigator that's doing NIH-supported or funded research is because NIH is an agency under HHS. So anytime they're doing human subjects research with HHS money, they would need to follow the HHS regulations at 45 CFR 46. Great. So let's jump into some of the process kind of questions. Are there any resources that we can share with our listeners to help determine if they're doing human subjects research? Yeah, actually, NIH and OHRP, who is the regulatory agency that makes sure people are in compliance with the HHS regulations, both have resources to help guide an investigator and the reviewing IRB to determine if the activity that's being proposed involves human subjects and is research. So NIH has a decision tool called Am I Doing Human Subjects Research? 
And NIH also has two different infographs, one that's called Human Subjects Research, and the other is called Exempt Human Subjects Research. OHRP also has a lot of resources, and the one that would be relevant for this is the Human Subjects Regulations Decision Charts. Just for clarification for our audience, uh, OHRP is the HHS uh, Office of Human Research Protection and uh, IRB's Institutional Review Boards, just to kind of spell out the acronyms. So along the lines of that tool, kind of jump in to uh, kind of get a better understanding of when or what might be considered human subjects research. Let's say I had some blood or tissue samples you know, that were from a previous experiment or previous study that are not directly involved with my current research project that I'm proposing. Would that fit? Oh, good question. That is generally called secondary research. It's when an investigator is doing research on information or specimens that were collected for another purpose. So there's a lot of considerations when an investigator is going to be working with previously collected bias specimens, such as what conditions were the samples obtained? Have they been anonymized, meaning that there's no way you can see who is who? de-identified or coded, meaning that original sample that had somebody's name and birthday has been anonymized, so the samples are A, B, or C, or will they have full identifiers? If the samples are coded, does the investigator or anyone on the research team have a key to the code, which would allow the investigator to identify who individual participants are? And if the specimens were obtained under a different research study, did the informed consent from that other research study disclose plans for new research activities? In other words, did the participant give permission for new research activities on that specimen that was going to be banked and used for something else? And I also want to note that in general, the reviewing IRB or the institution is going to determine if that specimen activity involves human subjects research or if the human subjects research activity with the bias specimen is exempt from the regulation or if it's not human subjects research at all. All right, well, let's build further on this. What if a sample came from, say, a deceased person? Is that considered human subjects research? Well, no, and as you might recall, I talked about the definition of human subjects a few minutes ago, and it's qualified by having the individual being a living person. So under the regulation, a deceased individual would not be considered human subjects. However, there may be some other regulations that would apply to this research. And one more example, what about for epidemiological studies? Well, in general, yes, epidemiology studies would be conducted using human populations to evaluate the distribution of disease and the factors that affect health. So yes, they would generally be human subjects research. All right, great, wonderful. Kind of moving on to a slightly different part. So like, what if I'm putting together my project and I have my application all ready to go, but I accidentally don't recognize it as human subjects when it actually does involve them? Well, if an applicant does not identify their project as including human subjects, then they are not going to include information that the reviewer is going to need. And unfortunately, this may result in poor scores and award delays. So, so uh, are there any other requirements that we should be thinking about? Well, there's a lot of other requirements if an investigator is conducting human subjects research. And let me talk about four of these. 
So the first one would be if the investigator is doing human subjects research, that means that their institution is engaged in research and is going to need a federal wide assurance or FWA is what it's called for short. And this, um, and then secondly, the awardee, which is the institution, will need to certify that the non-exempt human subjects research was reviewed and approved by the IRB. Third, investigators and all key personnel, and those would be people who were involved in the design or the conduct of NIH-funded human subjects research, will need to fulfill an education requirement on human subjects. And then this would also be relevant if there is a new staff member that joins after the NIH award is made. They would also need to do that education. And then fourth, I want to mention inclusion. So inclusion of children, women, and minorities needs to be adequate, and they'll need to track that. Uh, so I think you just mentioned non-exempt research, human subjects research. Uh, can you give examples of what might be exempted? Yes, yeah, so there is research that is considered exempt. The regulations actually have eight categories of research that have been identified as exempt research. And that could be anything from secondary research to research involving normal educational practices. And the important things to know about exempt research are the institution does not need a federal-wide assurance. There's no certification of IRB review required since you don't have to have IRB review for exempt human subjects research. But the investigator will still need to do the inclusion tracking for all exempt research, except for research which involves exemption category four, and that is the secondary use of biospecimens or data. Can the investigator make the decision on what, if, if it's exempt? Well, it's really interesting because the regulations don't actually identify who should be making this determination, but in general, I would say the institution or the IRB will have this responsibility to make the determination of whether or not something is exempt. It should not be the investigator because the investigator is considered to have a potential conflict of interest. And I guess one more point of clarification, you were mentioning institutions that were engaged in research. Is, um, can, you, can you clarify or discuss that a little bit further? Sure. So engagement is actually a term that is found in the regulations, and it says that each institution engaged in research that's covered by this policy, and it goes on and on and on, saying that it will comply with the requirements of this policy, and it's going, and that the institution will provide written assurance. So I had mentioned the federal-wide assurance earlier, and that would be the written assurance that an engaged institution would have to provide to OHRP. So depending on what the institution's involvement is in the research, the institution may or may not be engaged. So if an institution's employees are obtaining data about the participant through intervention or interaction, if they're obtaining identifiable private information about the research participant or obtaining informed consent from the participant, they would be found to be engaged in research. It would need that federal-wide assurance. 
Uh, great, great, great. Um, so this is an opportunity before we close out that I always like to give our, our guests an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit further, raise some important issues uh, about the topic. And are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the audience about kind of understanding human subjects research? So this is not always a cut and dry, easy thing to figure out. There's a lot of gray area, but know that there are a lot of resources available to investigators and institutions, including personnel, a program officer, NIH, OHRP, um, that they are not alone. And it's certainly their IRB as well within their institution. Great, wonderful. Um, uh, thank you, Lindy, for joining us virtually today, uh, discussing our first in a series of three discussions on how do I know I'm doing human subjects research. And uh, to reiterate one of the points that she just raised, please be sure to check out the NIH grant sites on um, human subjects research. You'll find a lot of great information there, as well as that on the uh, HHS Office of Human Research Protections. And don't hesitate to reach out to your program officials or here at the Office of Extramural Research for additional information. And we uh, look forward to having you joining us for a future conversation uh, on this topic, where we'll actually be focused a lot more on the applications in our second conversation and the award in the uh, third conversation. This has been David Kossuth with the uh, NIH Office of Extramural Research. Thank you very much.